Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 3. Heartland of the Witch Craze. An honourable man should not talk about that which he cannot prove. The publicised view of the ruling council of Rottenburg ob de Tauber. So many kinds of magic and demonic apparitions are gaining the upper hand in our time that nearly every city, market and village in all Germany is filled with vermin and servants of the devil. An anonymous pamphlet, 1590. The executioner rode a blooded horse like a noble of the court and went clad in gold and silver. His wife vied with noble dames in the richness of her array. The children of those convicted and punished were sent into exile, their goods were confiscated. An excerpt from the Gesta Trevororum on the Trier Witchcraft Trials. My dear servant, we have seen from our own eyes how inclement weather, snows and hail spoiled these poor people's dear fruits of the field, as the Almighty has allowed them to be so afflicted by the devil and his damnable agents. We order that you should secretly pay close attention to those evil persons and witches, and in case any should come under suspicion, you should stealthily nab them and immediately search their lodgings. Duke Ferdinand of Bavaria, initiating the Shungau Witch Trials of 1589. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast, and to the second in the Century of Fire series, my slightly romantic term for the period between 1560 and 1660, when thousands of people were burnt at the stake for witchcraft. This was by far the greatest persecution of suspected witches in all of Europe's history, and thoroughly puts to bed any notion that the witch trials were a symbol of the medieval world. Granted, some aspects of the trials had their roots in medieval practices, but it was now, in the beginning of the early modern period, the beginning of the Renaissance, that things really kicked off. We discussed the various theories on the origins of the witch trials last episode, and while I won't bore you by repeating it all now, the trials coincided with the religious upheaval of the Reformation, economic and social strain caused by changing weather patterns, changes to legal codes, and the evolution of the role of state and the church in criminal trials. As we covered last week, the debate over the origins of the trials will likely never be settled, and these are just the arguments that I have personally found convincing. Now that we have covered the general contexts relevant to most of Christendom, we can now devote individual episodes to particular time periods in particular countries. The title of this episode is borrowed from the title of an article by H.C. Middleford, where he puts forward his arguments on why the Holy Roman Empire became, quote, the heartland of the witch craze. I think that's quite an apt description, since not only did the Holy Roman Empire play host to the deadliest witch hunts in this period, hunts we will mostly cover today, but it also enjoyed dozens of lesser-known crazes. For many of these smaller hunts spread out across the Century of Fire, we know very little. Often the only records are second- or third-hand reports of the numbers executed, or that so-and-so official oversaw a trial at a hamlet that doesn't even exist anymore. To try and present the events in the Holy Roman Empire in a concise way, this episode will be devoted to two trials in the 1500s, 
one at the beginning of the century of fire, before things really kicked off, and one of the most infamous trials of the whole period, which began towards the end of the 16th century. Next episode, we will get into the meat of the topic, by looking at several of the deadliest trials that occurred in the Holy Roman Empire. Rottenburg ob de Tauber had been an imperial city since the 14th century, and was ruled by the autonomous city council made up of local landlords, who answered only to the emperor himself. The city was home to between five and 7,000 inhabitants, fairly average in size for a city of the Holy Roman Empire, and from the beginning of its status as an imperial city, Rottenburg began to expand its authority over the surrounding countryside, eventually being the fourth largest territory governed by an imperial free city in the whole empire. This added another 10 to 11,000 people to the population, although spread out over 400 kilometres and in 118 villages. Rottenburg Council had adopted Lutheranism in 1544, and the rest of the territory was free from the authority of the Catholic Bishop of Würzburg five years later. Similarly to elsewhere in Germany, Rottenburg had the occasional trial for sorcery throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, but also similarly to elsewhere, the trials did not involve many accused, and the standard punishment for such acts was banishment rather than death. This state of affairs continued under the Reformed Council, and between 1561 and 1629, of the 41 people brought to trial for witchcraft, only one was executed in 1629, and a mere nine were banished. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I thought this series was about some of the deadliest persecutions ever to occur in Europe, and here you are starting with a town that hardly burnt any witches. I thought this was the century of fire. Well, the reason we begin in Rottenburg is threefold. First, the events we're about to look at are first chronologically. Second, the restraint shown in Rottenburg is going to contrast very strongly with the other cases we're looking at over the next few episodes. Thirdly, and this ties in with the second point, Rottenburg's experience in the century of fire is far from extraordinary. There were many parts of Christendom, and indeed many parts of the Holy Roman Empire, that emerged more or less unscathed from the panics that would consume thousands. And there are those historians that argue that, while the trials were obviously terrible, they were far from common when looking at the whole region and period. Going back to the arguments for why the trials even occurred suggests that a combination of factors needed to be present for a witchcraft trial to take place, let alone escalate into a panic. The specific case of Rottenburg witchcraft that we're looking at today occurred in 1561, and quite surprisingly the people on trial were not those accused of witchcraft. In January 1561, Paulus and Barbara Brosom, a couple from the large village of Vetringen, sued two of their neighbours for slander. You see, these neighbours, Hans Lautenbach and Leonhard Immel, had spread rumours that Barbara dabbled in the forbidden arts, and that Paulus not only knew, but helped her in her crimes. The actual events surrounding the accusation of witchcraft illustrate the divide between everyday beliefs about the powers of witches and those held by university professors and theologians. Lautenbach had been transporting several barrels of wine from a nearby village when his cart had gotten stuck in the snow, leading him to abandon it. After getting home and sleeping in front of the fire, he had been pressed by a witch. In modern parlance, he had an episode of sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis causes its victim to wake up and be unable to move, and occasionally suffer from hallucinations. Having experienced it once myself, I can confirm that suddenly being woken up and finding yourself unable to move is genuinely terrifying. 
It is apparently quite a common event, so I'm sure some listeners have experienced the same thing. Historically, reasons given for sleep paralysis have been attacks by the supernatural, either by evil spirits, demons, or in this case, witchcraft. Come morning, Lardenbach urinated in a glass bottle, stoppered it, and locked it away. The logic being that whichever witch had been responsible for his nocturnal attack would be unable to pass water, forcing her to confront Lautenbach and destroy the bottle. Two days later, Lautenbach was approached by one of the Brosom's daughters with a message from Paulus, the husband, offering to accompany him back to his cart, while Paulus himself went to Lautenbach's home to make the offer in person. Now, so far, this seems like a genuinely nice thing to do, but Lautenbach was on the lookout for anything suspicious after his sleep paralysis, and this was certainly suspicious. He told his drinking buddies about the events, and suggested that Paulus was attempting to recover the stoppered bottle of urine, indirectly accusing Barbara Brosom of being the witch that had attacked him. Lautenbach, not trusting Paulus now, went to recover his cart alone, but Paulus supposedly followed him and begged for the bottle. Eventually, Lautenbach caved in and handed the urine to Paulus, who immediately smashed the bottle. This story was later recounted by both Lautenbach and his brother-in-law, Immel, in various taverns around Vetringen, spreading the allegation that the Brosoms practised witchcraft. Shortly after, the indignant Brosoms brought their case of slander to the Rottenburg City Council. Neither side would back down, and so they were all arrested and jailed while the truth was discovered. Paulus confirmed that he offered to accompany Lautenbach, but denied insisting on travelling together, claiming he had to travel anyway, but was concerned about brigands and hoped that a travelling companion would provide more safety than going alone. He also pointed out that Lautenbach would not have been able to recover his cart without his help, and denied ever asking for any glass container of any kind. For Paulus, the interaction had been nothing but neighbourly. Where Paulus was implying malicious fabrication by recounting a benign version of events, Barbara Brosom was much more explicit, as could be expected since she was the focus of the slander. Her defence revolved around three points. The first was that, if she were a witch, she would have been able to profit from her powers and would not have suffered the poverty she currently found herself in. The second was that herself and Paulus had voluntarily brought the case to the attention of the council, something they surely would not have done if they were in the wrong. Now, this is a tad disingenuous, since the rumours were already spreading rapidly. As anyone who has watched House of Cards knows, it is always better to get ahead of bad press. Nevertheless, Barbara forged on ahead by seeking to discredit her accusers, pointing out that Immel was known to accuse women of witchcraft when he was drunk, while Lautenbach was himself a debauched and sinful man. He had previously been found guilty of adultery a few years earlier, and a tad unfairly from today's perspective, Barbara suggested that the man had been inflected with epilepsy by God as a form of punishment. His words could clearly not be trusted. For the slanderers, things went poorly. Immel almost immediately turned on his brother-in-law, laying the blame solely at his feet, confessing that he had only repeated what Lautenbach had said first. After the Brosoms maintained their innocence, Lautenbach himself broke down and confessed that he had made it all up. He had never been pressed by a witch. His accusations were provoked by Barbara Brosom's hostility towards him, for she had insulted him and had herself spread rumours about his past, damaging his honour. Rottenberg Council 
was not impressed by his motives nor his confession, and for their slander, both Lautenbach and Immel were banished for life from the territory of Rottenburg ob de Tauber, but not before Lautenbach enjoyed a spell in the pillory. The events surrounding the Brosen case are interesting for a few reasons. The first is the importance of personal and family honour for the inhabitants of early modern Germany. Lautenbach had been motivated to slander the Brosoms because of their impinging of his honour, and the Brosoms had retaliated against this attack by travelling the ten miles to Vetringen to Rottenburg to seek the council's judgement, leaving their six young children at home. Honour was everything. Lautenbach possibly caved in out of fear that he would be asked to swear that he was truthful, and oaths were a serious commitment. If neither side of the case admitted fault, the council was justified to use torture, and Lautenbach was not in the best health and would likely break, voiding his oath and further damaging his reputation. There is another aspect of the case that is interesting. The council, under the stipulations of the Constitutio Carolina we discussed last week, were able to apply torture in cases of witchcraft. That they did not do so is used by historian Alison Rowlands as evidence of the council's unwillingness to make use of torture in cases where the guilty party is in doubt. As we shall see, this attitude was not universal, and in the worst cases of the witch panics, torture was used liberally and its results taken conclusively. The Brosoms left Rottenburg victorious in their suit. However, they were not allowed off scot-free. They had to pay the costs of their own incarceration, but more importantly were made to swear to return to Rottenburg City if any further allegations of witchcraft were levelled against them. While their innocence in this particular case had been settled, the Brosoms were now forever tainted by the accusation of witchcraft. We must now travel over 200 miles to the west and 20 years in the future, to the Rhineland Diocese of Trier, which has the questionable honour of being one of the largest and most well-known witchcraft trials in European history. The traditional blame for the trials of Trier has often been laid at the foot of the Archbishop Elector of Trier, Johann von Schonenberg. Schonenberg was elected to the bishopric in 1581 and confirmed and consecrated as bishop in 1582. Schonenberg was no friend of witches, that is certain, but recent scholarship has begun to absolve him of being solely responsible for the trials. So, what actually happened at Trier, and why is it such a big deal? Well, between 1587 and 1593, at least 368 people were burned at the stake for witchcraft, which was by far the greatest number of executions in Germany to date. To give this number some perspective, by the end of the trials, two villages that had once been rather populous were left with only one female inhabitant. But it was not only the peasants in the villages that found themselves on the pyres, almost a third of those executed were from the nobility, and many were officials and administrators of Trier itself. The panic did not exclusively target older women either, and both men and women were accused, tortured and burned. One of the quotes at the start of the episode was from the Gesta Treverorum, or the Deeds of the Treveri, a series of accounts written by a monk of St. Matthias Abbey within Trier, Hans Linden, who seems to have taken a very negative view of the trials themselves. The Gesta blames the initial surge of accusations on the popular belief that witchcraft and the devil were responsible for the failing harvests of the last few years, and accused those in power of fanning the flames to gain wealth. Not only the most powerful profited, as anyone involved in the trial process is described as growing rich from the panics, and we have that brilliant quote describing the rapid advancement of the executioner. 
From the wording, it appears that the man was initially neither influential nor wealthy, but once the trials were in full swing, he now, quote, rode a blooded horse like a noble of the court, end quote, while his wife competed with genuine noblewomen in the standards of her dress. One particular interesting aspect of the Trier trials is the fate of its opponents. As we know, the idea that witchcraft was a widespread cult worthy of torture and execution was far from unopposed in the Holy Roman Empire. For every case of violent and self-perpetuating trials, there are three more cases where the number of executions was minimal, or accusations were thrown out of court. Essentially, for every scholarly or theological argument on behalf of witches, there were directly contradictory arguments to be made from the other side of the fence. As discussed last episode, many of the fervent believers in the existence of witch cults often came from the universities. Now, I am the first to admit that I may be slightly biased here, but I can't help but be disappointed in myself for my pre-existing ideas. When I began researching this series, I was under the impression that it would be the church, both Protestant and Catholic, that would be the most strident voices for the trials, and that the rational and educated universities would be opposed to their barbarous methods. Well, fine listeners of the history of witchcraft, I was wrong. As with most things in history, there is an awful lot of grey once you take a closer look. So as it was, many of the legal experts who attended the trials were themselves firm believers in the witch cult and the witch's sabbat. However, that is not to say that the universities were breeding grounds for this belief, as we shall see with Trier's most famous dissenters. Cornelius Lucius Calidius Luce was a Dutch Catholic born in Gouda in 1546. He attended the University of Leuven, later fleeing when the Dutch Revolt captured the city. His studies continued, and after being ordained as a priest, he became a doctor of theology at the University of Mainz in 1578. He enters our story in 1585, when he moved to the city of Trier. Already a published author at this point, mainly writing against Protestantism, but also writing histories of the Dutch Revolt and other works, he was greatly unnerved by what he witnessed during the trials. Luz wrote to many of the city officials, seeking an end to the trials by arguing against their validity as a judicial system, mainly that confessions gained under torture were not valid, and that the charges levied at these witches were simply impossible. These private letters were just ignored by the officials, and so Luz began to work on a full manuscript titled The True and False Magic, which he then sought to publish in 1592. This book was to protest against the trials, questioning the beliefs and the piety of those conducting them, and naturally those people were both powerful and unwilling to be openly questioned. The manuscript was seized by Peter Binsfeld, deputy to Schonenberg and a strong advocate for the trials. He himself had published Of the Confessions of Warlocks and Witches in 1589, recounting the confessions he had personally witnessed, and advocating both the validity of tortured confessions and the importance of denunciations. Luz was arrested and imprisoned. I can't say for sure whether he was tortured or otherwise mistreated, but it is likely. To devout believers in the dangers of witchcraft, his public condemnation of their efforts could be construed as heresy, and indeed it was. Whether it was due to torture, or the threat of torture or execution for his crime, or merely desiring his freedom, Luz publicly recanted his beliefs in 1593 in front of a papal nuncion in Brussels. 
we have the text of this recantation, which was published by our good friend Martin Del Rio in 1600. I will post a link to the translation of this text on the Facebook page, as it is genuinely fascinating. I can personally imagine Luz swearing under his breath as he point by point disassociated himself from his own work. Del Rio published this as evidence of the truth, claiming that Luz was possibly under the sway of the devil when attempting to stop the trials, but the text of the recantation takes on a brilliant light when you read it knowing that every word was forced. For example, one point is, quote, I have pertinaciously, without solid reasons, alleged against the magistracy that the flight of witches is false and imaginary, asserting, moreover, that the wretched creatures are compelled by the severity of the torture to confess things which they have never done, and that by cruel butchery, innocent blood is shed, and by a new alchemy, gold and silver coined from human blood. End quote. After initially stating that he no longer holds this opinion, Luz goes on to spell out his entire argument. I can almost imagine him saying this in a sarcastic tone. Yes, I definitely, definitely don't think that you're all fanatical opportunists torturing people into submission and using these confessions to make a boatload of money. Definitely not. No, I've changed my mind about that. After his completely honest recantation, Luz was released, but continued to be monitored by ecclesiastical agents for any sign of relapse. The bishops perhaps thinking Luz was maybe not fully truthful. Clearly, they found something to make them believe this was the case, as Luz appears to have been imprisoned several more times before his death due to plague in 1595. Del Rio, the bright ray of sunshine that he is, took this opportunity to lament that this natural death had allowed Luz to avoid his just punishment of execution. Good old Martin. The sheer number and variety of suspects was, as described in the Gesta, due to, quote, the madness of the furious populace and of the courts, end quote, and that the end of the trials was not due to a decrease in the desire for further trials, but rather that, quote, the people grew impoverished. Rules were made and enforced, restricting the fees and costs of examinations and examiners, end quote. The excerpt ends by comparing the end of the trials to that of a military campaign, quote, as when in war funds fail, the zeal of the persecutors died out, end quote. It's pretty clear that the author of this passage of the Gesta Trevororum was not convinced by the pious motives put forward for the trials of Trier, and instead held the opinion that the popular, but incorrect, beliefs of the masses had been channeled by certain individuals in order to better themselves. Once the money dried up, due to restrictions of fees and the deterioration of the economy, due to, you know, much of the population being burned or imprisoned, the impetus for continuing the trials ended. Of Archbishop Schonenberg, the only translations of the Gesta that I can find discussing him do so in a fairly neutral tone, and don't appear to lay the blame for the trials at his feet. Quote, Hardly any of the archbishops governed their dioceses with such hardship, such sorrows, and such extreme difficulties as Johann. During the whole period, he had to endure a continuous lack of grain, the rigours of the climate and crop failure with his subjects. Only two of the 19 years were fertile. End quote. Historians, of course, are themselves divided on Schonenberg's responsibility for the bloodbath, with Middlefort stating that the trials were sponsored by the Archbishop, whereas Beringer, the advocate of witch panics being sourced from the larger populace, 
presenting the chaos of Trier as an example of what happens when the ordinary people took justice into their own hands. So strong was the belief in witches being responsible for the famine, so Beringer argues, that the weak authority of the archbishop was overruled by the pressure from below. Not acting, or even attempting to steer their ire, would lead to even worse destruction. Further helping redeem Schoenenberg's role in the trials are records of him enacting decrees in 1591 and 1592 to try and curb the trials. As far as I can tell, Schoenenberg's main failing, if he wasn't the zealous witch hunter traditionally he's seen as, then it's the failing to rein in his subordinate, Peter Bensfeld. As mentioned when we were discussing Cornelius Luz, Binsfeld was Schoenenberg's auxiliary bishop and deputy within Trier. He was the man that took particular issue with Luz's publication, taking his opposition to the witch trials as a personal affront. This isn't too surprising considering Luz describes the witch hunters as, at best, deluded fools and at worst greedy tyrants willing to butcher innocents for wealth. Binsfeld was responsible for Luz's imprisonment and recantation, but the Dutch doctor was not his only opponent and he got off comparatively lightly. Dietrich Flader was a Trier native that had risen high within the city. He was the rector of the university and the chief judge of the trials. However, he was personally opposed to the trials, doubting the effectiveness of torture in gaining genuine confessions, and subsequently sentenced the convicted lightly. Well, this certainly wouldn't do now, would it? Flader was first accused of attending a witch sabbat by a young boy, who claimed that he had been a part of a conspiracy against the archbishop's life in 1587, and he spoke of seeing, quote, richly clad people, end quote, at the gathering during his interrogation. Upon seeing Flader at the flogging of a criminal, he declared that he was one of those richly clad men at the sabbat. Later that year, in July, a woman called Maria was burned at the stake in the village of Erang. Maria testified, without torture, that Flada had attended the witch's sabbat multiple times, and apparently would have kept, quote, shouting out his name if they had not stopped her, end quote, during her trial and execution. Following this open and loud denunciation, further witches gave Flada's name when tortured for their conspirators. Locke Hans was burnt at the stake a month later, clinging to his accusation that Flada was a witch. In April of the following year, Margaret of Uren testified to the following, found in the papers of American historian George Burr. Dr. Flader had come to the witch Sabbath in a golden wagon. There he had urged the destruction of all the crops, but the poor had opposed him and she herself had protested, whereupon he struck her with a stick, saying that they of Trier had enough yet. And when in despair she had uttered the name of God, the whole assembly had instantaneously vanished. He and his followers had once brought on a terrible hailstorm, which had killed 46 cows at Falsal, by standing in the Beaver Brook and pouring water over their heads in the name of a thousand devils. And he had wished to overturn both the Falsal and the Urine Woods, so that no more stakes could be made for the burning of witches. He had also created the snails which had injured the crops, how he could himself tell if asked, he had helped dig up from the churchyard at Urin a four-weeks child whose heart had been taken out, baked in a fritter, and shared among the witches in order to make it impossible for them to confess their witchcraft. She herself was indeed confessing, but she had only eaten a little, end quote. Margaret stuck to her story, even when questioned by Flada's colleagues and friends, 
and was burnt at the stake. The following month, another witch confirmed Flada's involvement. The report on Flada, ordered by the Archbishop after the first few accusations, included the confessions of 14 witches, all either denouncing him by name or by describing a man fitting his description from Trier. Things were looking dire for Flada, and things only got worse when he tried to run. Now firmly under suspicion for witchcraft, he would not have been able to leave the city on his own, so he sought out the aid of Johann von Eltz, the commander of the local chapter house of the Teutonic Order. Eltz was journeying to conduct order business, and Flada approached him and requested to accompany him. He had errands in the same region, he claimed, and von Eltz happily agreed. But whether someone as highly positioned as Eltz would have been unaware of the accusations against Flada is somewhat unlikely. They travelled the 30 miles to Beckingen, and here Eltz received a message from Trier admonishing him for helping a witch escape. This was an accusation that the commander of a Deutonic chapter house could not have hanging over him, and so Eltz brought Flada back to Trier, despite the old man's pleas. Flada was then kept under house arrest until he was brought to the Electoral Palace, where accusations of witchcraft were formally made against him. All this time previously, Flada had declared his innocence in writing, and in person to everyone in Trier, to the public gathered angrily outside his house, to the Archbishop-elector himself. It made no difference. Former colleagues were refused the chance to resign from the case of judging their own friend, and no pleas for clemency for the old man were accepted. Flada's trial officially began a year later, in August 1589, and proceeded just like every other witch trial, with the exception that Flada knew what was coming and what would be expected of him. The crimes of which he was accused were considered so vile that no account was made for his age, health, rank or position, and he was treated like any peasant accused of witchcraft. The trials of Trier made use of the strapado method of torture, where the victim's hands were tied behind their back and they were lifted until off the floor. Occasionally, their feet were nailed to the ground to add to the agony, and if they were not executed, they were often left with crippling injuries for the rest of their life. I'll now quote from Burr again, as he described Flada's experience. Dietrich Flada knew well what a witch confession was expected to be, and little by little they wrung from him the grotesque nonsense they sought. He knew, too, that whatever else might be omitted, one thing could never be, the names of his accomplices. It was of no use to allege that the witches were masked, or to name only those already executed. Such tricks were long worn out. A happier thought was it, as is proven by the history of more than one witch persecution, when he began accusing his own judges, and at least those absent from the torture chamber were duly named in the record, but no court would be content with these alone, nor yet when, with a still truer instinct, he denounced the great of the land. Once it seemed as though his tormentors were satisfied, but the elector returned the prisoner's answers, declaring that thus far they were mere child's play, and the whole procedure had to be begun over again. Piteous was it when even the imagination of the old judge could no further go, and complaining of the failure of his own memory, he was forced to beg that the testimony against him be repeated to him as a reminder, which was done. End quote. Dietrich Flader's trial came to an end. A guilty verdict was duly brought, and the acting judge, who, by the way, was sat in Flader's seat, brought Flader's staff of office down on his knee and snapped it in two. 
Flatter fell to his knees and begged for the mercy of the court, and it was duly granted. Instead of being burnt alive at the stake, he would, quote, mercifully and Christianly be strangled, end quote. On the 18th of September, 1589, Dietrich Flader was hanged until he was dead, and then his body burnt to ash. Now, whether or not this was a conspiracy against Flader set in motion by his enemies, those who opposed his leniency when they were trying to purge their realm of witches, is up for debate. I say that it is up for debate, but when you consider that there is no legitimate evidence of any witch sabbat ever taking place, the foundation of his trial falls into doubt. The question is then, how did Flader's name and appearance become known to so many convicted witches? Putting aside the idea of a conspiracy, it was common for those being tortured to name people in power as their accomplices. Flader was an important man in Trier and its surrounding villages, and he would have been known to many. Once the first few denunciations became well known, it is perfectly believable that the name of the famous judge would come to the lips of many more tortured witches, and vague descriptions of rich Trier men would be much easier to name for the prosecutors when they already suspected Flader. Whether or not Flader's execution was orchestrated, his death had far-reaching implications. In Trier, all meaningful resistance in the judiciary had been silenced. Flader was the most vocal of opponents, and his name had been dragged through the mud for it. Not wanting to share his fate, his former colleagues became much less lenient towards those convicted of witchcraft. However, Flader's confession gave an enormous piece of ammunition for advocates of the trials, such as our favourite Martin Del Rio, who holds up Flader's trial as an example of how far witchcraft conspiracies can spread. That Flader, a respected and educated man, had confessed to attending witch sabbats directly challenged those, like Vaya, who claimed that the sabbats were hallucinations of the mentally ill. The fact that Flader had been relentlessly tortured was irrelevant, Del Rio had already decided that torture was a perfectly legitimate way of revealing the truth. Next week, we remain within the borders of the Holy Roman Empire. Trier, while terrible, is only the beginning. Over the next 30 years, the trials will escalate and spread, with deadly consequences. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>